Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever it is that you are listening to us. And welcome once again to our Psalm series as we travel on a journey through the Psalms. And today we're going to look at Psalm number seven, God's number, the number seven, the days of the week. And we're going to look and understand what is a Diffiram. If you've never known what a Diffiram is, today you'll be able to finish by saying, I know what a Diffiram is. So if you've got a Bible with you, why not turn to Psalm 7, have a read through, and when you have read it, why don't you restart this podcast and we'll see what this psalm has to say to us in this day and age. Well done, hopefully you've enjoyed that and you're probably aware if you've been doing many of these psalms of us through the series this is the longest one that we've looked at so far it certainly isn't the longest one in the book of psalms but it is the longest one we've looked at so far and since this is a short study only over 20 minutes we're not going to be looking in depth at every word and every sentence that's in but we're going to be looking at the overview and understanding of what is this psalm and what might we draw out of it and i tease the intro into this by saying that we're going to look at what a diffiram is now I'm sure that's probably not a word that you've heard before, or maybe it is, but a diffiram is a poetical term that isn't something you'll learn in an English language course or an English literature course, but it is something you'll learn when understanding about Jewish poetry. See, there are rules to poetry that sometimes we experience. Maybe when you were at high school, you had to be taught these, and that's the rules of symmetry within a poem. Often, like in haikus, you have a certain amount of uh, uh, sections that have to be in that. Or, of course, we know that there are rules of rhythm. Sometimes there are rules of rhyme. But within Jewish poetry, there are also what we call uh, parallelisms of thought. And we may get into those over the sessions that we'll be looking at. I don't want to kind of confuse you with all of that right now. But it is wonderful to start to think about the way that various verses and poems and particularly more so in the proverbs than in the psalms that these are done in contrasting sometimes synthesis ways now if that all seems a bit deep you don't need to know any of that about a diffiram because a diffiram is a, a term for a poem that is out of time and by out of time i don't mean that it's something that's uh, not of the age it was written but I mean that its timing is all over the place. It has an unusual staccato and rhythm to it, which obviously doesn't become clear when you're reading it in the book of Psalms. And I'm sure it didn't come clear in the note that you were looking at. But when you hear it with the music and the music it was required to be at, then it comes with this unusual timing. One of my favorite pieces of uh, jazz music is a, uh, a song called uh, Take Five, and you've probably heard the the song. It's not sung, it's uh, just played with jazz musicians. But what's exciting about it, particularly for me, who likes to play the drums, is the, the beat. It's the Lucy 4-5 time. It's almost impossible for a drummer to play it. And uh, uh, Brubeck's band, he had a blind drummer who could play this 4-5 time. And if you've ever heard of it, you ever listen to it or maybe you're going to go and listen to it later when you hear the drum beat afterwards you understand it's got an unusual rhythm to it that's just 
it drives you along and, and it's a, a song that's used in a lot of adverts. It's used by a lot of filmmakers to try and suggest a series of energy and it's often done with lots of sharp and strong cuts, uh, film uh, shooting from this character to that character and it creates energy and excitement. And that's what a Diffie-Ram is. A Diffie-Ram is a song that is meant to push across in passion and uh, what they call something that is vehemently impassioned to you. It's pushed upon you that you can get that there is a, a real sense of flitting from one thought to another thought, a, a sense of not being able to sit still, a, a sense of passion and an excitement. And in the case of Psalm 7, it's also a sense of how the soul might feel inside. You see, this isn't a particularly happy psalm. It's not one that sits and says, isn't God awesome? Or starts talking about the many ways that I love Jesus. It's a passion and a passioned poem that talks about what it's like when people start talking about you behind their back. Now, the timing of this particular psalm is found to have been... Uh, based around the periods of 1 Samuel 23 to 26. And funnily enough, at this particular time when I'm recording this podcast, I'm also doing this Bible study in a series in a church at the moment. And the elements that you see in those four chapters is here is David being chased down by King Saul. Now, David really hasn't done anything wrong to Saul. There's nothing that he's done to upset him or to anger him. In truth, Saul is angry, in fact, hates, in fact, is breathing murderous statements about David, not because of what David has done, but because of who David is. Saul isn't angry at David. He's angry at God. And he's taking that out on David, not because he's the nearest guy or he's his whipping boy, but because David is the one who has been called to become the new king of Israel. He is the one who will take the place so that Saul's heirs no longer sit upon that throne because Saul has utterly rejected God. And in that moment, as we see often throughout the Bible, such as Jonah going to Nineveh, he doesn't preach repentance, he preaches judgment. But they seek repentance from God. And because God is merciful, even though he didn't offer it, he gives it freely when it's asked for because that's his nature and wonder. And if Saul had come to that conclusion about God, then his life and maybe even the narrative of the Bible would have been very different. Of course, the Lord knows the end from the beginning. He knew that that wasn't going to be the case. Hence, why his proclamation so early in Saul's life, because he knew what decision Saul would come to in these options. Now, he didn't need to be chasing David to his death, but he was. And on two occasions in that chase, Saul fell into David's hands. The first time Saul went into a cave, we can only imagine what he was going in there for. And as he was in this cave, he didn't so realize that David and all his men were at the back of the cave. With his back turned and his mind busy, Saul was at David's mercy, but David did not take his revenge. And next time, Saul was asleep in his camp and the guards were asleep. His general was asleep. Nobody was protecting him. David walked right up to the king, his spear above his own head. 
David needed, but to take that king and that spear and to push it straight through the king. And why not? You know, God had made promises to David. God had called David to this position. It was in his power to take what he wanted and when he needed it. And his faithful assistant at the time, a man by the name of Ahinoam, said, I'll do it. It'll all be over. I'll do it. Hasn't surely God put him into your hands? And even the scripture tells us that God had put Saul into a deep sleep. But David knew the heart of God. He says the words, I'll not kill him. But if the Lord takes him or if he dies of his own hand, then that will be a different story. And of course, Saul does die at his own hands. David makes a decision here, a very difficult but deliberate one, where he decides he's not going to take matters into his own hands. And in this Diffie-Ram that is Psalm 7, we get to understand the state of mind of somebody who, shall we say, flits back and forth after making a right and moral decision according to the word of the Lord, according to the nature of God, and aware that this is going to have a personal effect on him. He can't cope. He struggles with the idea that these people are saying things about him. And yet David is trying to embody the idea that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Now, I wonder if you've ever been in a position, people speak about you, they say things, they say half-truths, or they take facts and they twist them. There's a sense of injustice that rises inside of us. Every single one of us, I, I don't doubt anybody would feel any differently in this matter. You want to set the record straight. You want to stand up in the middle of uh, your accusers and you want to set out exactly what was said, why it was said and what was meant. You want to correct the injustices of what's going on. But as a Christian, if you hold on to the understanding and teaching that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Then you're going to be in a diffy round state. An impassioned staccato of noise that is sometimes in step with what God wants and at other times wants to see their head hanging on a pike because you feel the justice of God and then the injustice of man. You trust in the Lord and then you want your revenge and these contradictory ideas that float around within. You know, if poetry was ever meant to describe anything it's always in a sense been emotion emotion is always the hardest thing to try and describe even when you're trying to speak it out or say it you know you might be an impassioned speaker you might be a passionate playwright an actor who can show tears and joy and emotion all of those things on but when you try and put that into paper every author will tell you it's a challenge so when you entitle something a poem or poetry, then I think the reader themselves are already aware. They're trying to express emotion and you as the reader are trying to draw that emotion from the piece of paper that's before you. So when you know that this is a diffiram, you can come into this and see the, the emotion that comes back and forth. Where you have... David kind of, is it my fault? Have I done it wrong? Lord, you'll have your way. You deal with it. You come down and sort out this issue. And then we get uh, into verse 10. My defense is from God. He saves the upright in heart. But in verse 9, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. 
as you can see, they are contradictory thoughts, but at the same time, they all are true of who the Lord God is. And the only thing that we do wrong when we understand the nature of God, both as somebody who will bring justice upon the unrighteous and somebody who will defend us, the thing that we get wrong is timing. Now, something that is a common theme through the Psalms is a kind of a phrase, oh, how long, Lord, until you pour out your judgment upon my enemies. Now, from a, a kind of a, a God is love standpoint that is often preached and taught in a lot of churches, the very idea or concept of God as a judging God anyway is difficult. But then if you take a group of people on social media and somebody posts and says, uh, such and such did this to me, and all of a sudden, all of their friends and close associates, doesn't matter if they were in the right or the wrong, immediately circle around them and say, oh, that's bang out of order. I can't believe they said that to you. You should complain. You should go to the authorities. You should call the police. You should go and take your revenge. You should smash their car up. All of these kind of expressions start to come out and get poured out all the time. It's the indifference, should we say, the contradictory nature again. We don't want, when we're in the attitude of being full-on Christian, to think of God as somebody who brings judgment. But when we've been wronged, we want the book to be thrown at them. <laughs> and maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Now, that does make us seem contradictory to the world around us. And that's where we've got to hold on and understand some very important scriptures. And that's first of all the nature of God. We read it in Second Peter chapter 3 where we have this scripture talking about the end of all things. People mocking the church and saying, well, yesterday was the same as today. But we hear this phrase about the Lord to say that he isn't slow uh, to his anger. It isn't that he, he can't be bothered. It isn't that... God's having a rest and he's having a nap and we've got to wait till he wakes up. It tells us that the Lord is slow to come to this outpouring of judgment because he's hoping that all may come to repentance. This is the nature of God. Friends, in the end, there will be a judgment upon all mankind. That cannot be changed. And if you don't think that's the act of a loving God, then you don't understand love. At the end of all days, God is love because he gives us the opportunity when we don't deserve it to be forgiven of the very debt that we owe. Friends, we deserve to be in that courtroom. If we were to stand before the Lord at the day of judgment, we would be found short. But he has made the running. He has come to defend us. God saves the upright in heart, but none of us are that. David himself would go on to write, there is none that are righteous. No, not one. There is none that seeks after God. But what we see within this scripture is, yes, God judges the righteous and the Lord is not happy with the wicked. Remember, we've already seen this. We, we can all fall into that wicked category. We have to understand that parents can love their children, but not like what their children do. And we often understand it. We have this phrase that a mother's love can see past so many sins. Well, the father's love sees past and sees to our hearts, sees who we are. It's his love for us that sees salvation. 
but it doesn't mean, friends, that he's happy with the way that we are and the way that we behave. But yet he holds, he holds. He's bent his bow, he's made it ready, but he doesn't shoot. He's laid the ax next to the tree, but he hasn't chopped yet. And we understand that and understand that nature of who God is. But at the same time, what this psalm teaches us is the very truth within ourselves that this can cause such heartache and human emotion that we often are like, shall we say, a cat on a hot plate. We bounce around, we jump from one conclusion to the other, we go from one extreme to the other, but the psalm gives us a sense of understanding. If we get to the end element of this, we read from verse 14, behold, he labors in pain with iniquity. He has conceived mischief and he has brought forth falsehood. Now, of course, David isn't talking about the Lord. He is talking about the enemy. And he's not talking about the enemy as in somebody who's saying something bad about us. He's talking about the enemy, the devil. He's talking about the one who is our enemy. Understanding this, he dug a pit, he bored it, but he's fallen into the very hole that he made. He's the one who concocted to send Jesus to the cross. We know this because it tells us Satan entered Judas. But that very cross that he had Jesus go to, that very pit that he dug to try and catch God out, in the same way that Saul, who desperately tried to kill David because David embodied the promises of God. Well, that very cross, that very cross that the devil thought he'd won with was the means of our salvation. And so his mischief shall return on his own head and his violence became his own crown. For the devil is now but a roaring lion. He roars. And if you heard a roaring lion when you were out at the park or you were in a forest going for a nice walk or you were down at the beach, then you'd be absolutely terrified because if you're going to go to the zoo, you want to make sure you're on the right side of the fence when you're looking at the carnivorous animals. But it's just a roar. Because what the enemy meant for evil, the Lord turned to God. Therefore, we are left with only one conclusion. After our diffiram, after our little panic, after our uh, moves from one side to the other of different contradictions and extremes, after we try and deal with the fact that, yes, I know that God, God will uh, have his vengeance. We know that it belongs to him. But Lord, the same things about me. When we calm ourselves down and understand that all of that wickedness in the end, the Lord turns for his good. As long as we understand good, the good is that all might come to repentance because that's the reason for the Lord's delay in his hand of judgment. That those who are wronging you might get saved. Then we come to this last line, a common enough line that sometimes gets us through difficult moments. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. And friends, that's not just worship God. That phrase, according to his righteousness, 
another wound. You've got to make your peace with the fact that the reason that God is allowing you to be persecuted for things you have not done, to come under all kinds of names and name calling that is painful and difficult and may even have an effect on you, is because the Lord is hoping that those very people who are doing that to you will come to repentance. That's his righteousness. That's his rightness. And until our hearts are in line with his, then that phrase, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God will still be true of us. So will we praise God because his heart is to the lost? Yes, he loves us, but his heart is for him. I hope that has blessed you and encouraged you. And that this can bring you through your own Diffie Ram moments. The Lord bless you.